Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, you, Lord Lord Christ. Again, thank you for being here with us in worship. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you through your Son, for we pray in his name. Amen. This is the first Sunday in the season of Epiphany, which is a word that means to reveal or to make known. And as a season, it's a time for us to focus upon Jesus, on seeing Jesus more clearly and also the life that he offers to us more clearly, more fully. And there was a national epiphany last Sunday evening. I'm sure many of you know the story and been following it. The Buffalo Bills were playing the Cincinnati Bengals in Monday night football. In the stadium in Cincinnati, it was packed. The commentator said it was the loudest that they had ever heard the stadium. Each team had had the ball on offense one time. Cincinnati had scored a touchdown. Buffalo had kicked a field goal. And then in a very routine looking play, quarterback Joe Burrow dropped back. He completed a pass to receiver T. Higgins. And then the safety for the Buffalo Bills, a man named DeMar Hamlin, came up from the secondary to make the tackle. And then after that hit, he stood up, but then he collapsed. And it wasn't a normal looking collapse. He didn't crumple like a conscious person. He, he fell like a tree that had been cut because that very routine looking hit stopped his heart. And immediately the CPR or the medical uh, personnel came out to administer CPR. They did so for over 10 minutes and finally got his heart to beat again and then took him by ambulance to the hospital where he remains now in critical condition, but he's conscious and he's communicating with loved ones and with family, with his friends, football team. And it was an epiphany about many things, about football included, all the commentators and the players and the coaches, they were saying the same thing, that they had never seen anything or experienced anything like this. They, they know that football is a violent sport and they know that they put themselves at risk in playing it, but they, they don't think about that very often. That Thoughts like that are at the very back of their minds until they can't not think about it. And DeMar Hamlin's injury made them think about it. 
It made them see the dangers of their sport like never before. And it, it showed them, it revealed to them that especially in that moment, that game no longer mattered. What mattered was DeMar Hamlin's life. And so it was this epiphany. And we all need epiphanies to see clearly what is true and right and good about anything, but especially when it comes to God, which is why this season each year begins with Jesus's baptism. It is an epiphany, a revelation of God, of who he is, of all that he is doing for us in this world. And each of the three synoptic gospels, they begin not only with Jesus's baptism, but also with his temptation. The temptation follows on the heels immediately after baptism. So the question I want us to ask this morning is why do these two events together what do these two events together reveal about Jesus? And not only about him, but also about us. And so two points this morning, our doubt and our identity. First of all, our doubt. One simple question to begin with is why? Why does the temptation follow Jesus's baptism? And part of that answer lies in the Old Testament because what happens here in the gospel repeats a very familiar biblical pattern. And that pattern is that Satan always and immediately attempts to undo that which God has done. Satan is the author of sin. Sin, as I often tell you, is a spiritual power that, that seeks to tear apart that which God has bound together. And that is exactly what the word devil literally means in the original language. In verse three, Satan is spoken of as the tempter which could be simply translated the one doing the tempting. But verse five gets more specific, giving him a name, calling him the devil, diabolos in Greek, which is also just transliterated straight into Spanish. But the root word behind that name means to cast away or to tear apart, or even as one commentator I read emphasizes to split. <clears throat> he uses the, the name, the splitter rather than the devil, which I think is helpful for us because we can become so familiar with the name devil that it can be somewhat innocuous to us. But the splitter, that can get our attention. Martin Luther in his larger catechism asked the question, what is the devil's main object? What is his main work? And he answers to lead us to ignore and to utterly cast away both God's word and his works. In other words, to split us apart from that which God says and that which God is doing. And that's what's happening here in this temptation. God has said something about Jesus and he is doing something in and through Jesus. And immediately Satan steps on the scene in order to split Jesus apart from God's word and his works. Just like in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And you know the story, I don't have to recount it for you. But God creates them in his image. He tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. And then he tells them to enjoy every aspect of his creation with the exception of one tree. And then immediately Satan shows up. And what does Satan say? Really simply, are you sure? Are, are you sure? Did God really say that? And if God really did say that, does he really have your best interest in mind? Do you think that he really wants you to be happy? Does what he say really constitute life for you? And the same thing happens with the nation of Israel after their baptism because them passing through the waters of the Red Sea in their exodus out of Egypt was a baptism of sorts. And before that baptism, God had come to Moses and had said, these are my people. So these people here, these slaves, they're my people. And I'm going to rescue them from slavery. And here's a quote, I'm going to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So again, there in Exodus, God speaks and then he acts 
But then in the wilderness, Israel is split apart from everything that God has said and everything that God does. And they begin to grumble and they begin to complain and they stop trusting what God has said and trusting that he'll actually bring them out into a new land, this land of flowing with, with milk and honey. And they begin to wonder if God has not abandoned them in the wilderness to die. And I just wonder how often we find ourselves wondering the same thing. Is God really still present with me? Has he just abandoned me here? Sure, he said this. Maybe he was doing this, but now here I am all alone. And I wonder if I'm just abandoned here to die in this situation, in this circumstance. And in all three of these stories, in Genesis and in Exodus and here in the Gospels, it's the same pattern. God speaks and he acts. And then Satan, the splitter, steps in to tear apart those from whom he is at work from his word and from his works. This is what we have here in Matthew 4. Look more closely here at Matthew chapter 4. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Jesus is in the same place as Israel after the Exodus. Did you notice that? In the wilderness. And, they're all, and he's also in the same condition as them. They were hungry, and he's hungry here. He's been there for 40 days. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, all sorts of overlapping elements. And then in verse three, we find Jesus' first temptation. And it's just like the temptation of Eve in the garden. It centers upon food. But really, at a deeper level, it's about doubt. Because there are two opposing voices ringing in Jesus's ears. You are my beloved son. And then the splitter's voice. If you are the son of God. In other words, again, are you sure? And I think it raises the question for us, how is it and where is it that seeds of doubt about God's word, where has that been sown into our hearts? Because we can't live in this world, which in very many ways is like a spiritual wilderness and not struggle with doubting God's word. So in what part of your life do you wonder, is that what the Bible really says? Is that what the scriptures really say? And if it's really what the scriptures say, then does God really have my own best interests at heart? Does God really want me to be happy. Maybe you wonder that about your marriage. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Many are. And maybe you're wondering if it'd just be easier or better for you, especially for you if you just ended it, just left and moved on. Maybe you think, well, I'd be more happy. Or maybe it's with your singleness. I have a number of single folks who worship with us here at All Saints, and many of them I know are faithfully living out a Christian single life. But, but maybe nobody's asking you out, or maybe those that you're asking out aren't responding, and you're wondering if you should just change your approach to dating and change your approach to sex and change your approach to relationships. Or maybe it's your sexuality. Or maybe you have, you have doubt and you wonder about your work or your relationship with money or wealth, or maybe your kids. You're, you're raising your children. You're attempting to raise them in a faithful way according to the scriptures instead of what their friends and the culture around them says, but it's wearying. It's so very wearying, and you're wondering, maybe I should just give in and capitulate. And so where are the seeds of doubt about God's word being sown in your heart and your life? Maybe even where have they taken root already? Do you remember the story, the Old Testament story of Abraham and his wife, Sarah? Do you know that story? God promises Abraham that he'll be the father of a great family, and that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed but he gives Abraham a barren wife. Talk about making it difficult. And then in the midst of all that difficulty, what did Abraham do? You remember? He doubted. He doubted God's word. We know he doubted God's word because he took matters into his own hands. 
really what he did is he took matters into his own bed and he slept with his wife's servant and fathered a child with her. And friends, that is the exact temptation that we have here with Jesus. The temptation to doubt God's word to the point where Jesus might take matters into his own hands and attempt to feed himself, to change stones into bread and to feed himself because he's been told by God that he's God's son. It's a shorthand for the Messiah, the savior of the world. But he can't be God's son. He can't be the Messiah if he's dead. And it's true that man doesn't live by bread alone, but man does live by bread at least. And so if God isn't gonna show up and fulfill his promises, if God isn't going to make good on his word, then maybe Jesus should just do what Abraham before him did and should fulfill God's promises for him. And that is the temptation. The temptation to doubt and then to act in your own strength and in your own ideas, in your own timing, especially if God's not gonna show up in your timing. And we know this temptation. We all know this temptation. So ask yourself, how do I know it? How do I take matters into my own hands? How do I attempt to do God's job for him and to fulfill his promises for him, especially when he's being too slow or too inept to do them? And also, if you are, and we all are, what's guiding you? What's guiding you in the way that you're making these decisions? Is it your feelings? Is it shallow platitudes about circumstantial happiness? Is it someone else's word, a friend's word, a group of friends' word, a counselor's word, a family member's word, the words of the broader culture? What words? What, what is it that's guiding you and what are they saying? Is it in any way accord, in accord with God's word or does it sow seeds of doubt? Does it ask, are you sure? Because we all know doubt. A point to our identity. What Satan especially attempts Jesus to doubt concerning God's word is his identity. One of my favorite novels of all time, you probably know this, we could have a guess and I'm sure some of y'all would guess it, but one of my favorite novels of all time is Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. It's one of the best novels I've ever read and it's about an old pastor. And some of you are thinking, well, of course you like it. I'm not that old yet. But it's about this man named Ames and he's writing his memoirs for his young son because he knows that he's going to die before his son will have many memories of him. And while he's writing his memoirs, a young man named Jack Bowden shows up in Gilead, this town, after fleeing it 20 years earlier in disgrace. And he fled it because he got a young girl pregnant. This girl was from a very poor family and she had a child who was a special needs child. And then that child died from neglect just three years later and Jack took off. And Jack is the youngest son of Ames' best friend, who's also a pastor. So it's like this town of dysfunctional pastors. But anyways, Gilead is told from Ames' perspective, and it revolves around his conversations with Jack, trying to, to bring him back to the Christian faith and to embrace the forgiveness that's being offered to him. But the sequel to Gilead is this book, Home. And it's the same exact story, but it's told from Jack's perspective. And both books beg the question, who is Jack Bowden? Who is he and what is his identity? Because in both, Jack can't see himself the way that his father sees him and the way that Ames sees him. And that's been the source of all of his life's sorrows. Jack has always lived out an alternative identity other than the one that his father gave him. In fact, you see it played out in his name because his name is John Ames Bowden. John Ames Bowden, named by his father after his father's friend, but he goes by Jack throughout all of the novels. He goes by Jack and it's the harder, harsher, sharper sounding version of that name, John, because that's who he thinks he is. 
He says time and time and time and time again throughout the novel, I'm a scoundrel. I'm a scoundrel. And he's always been a scoundrel because he's always believed that's his identity. And so what is your identity? And what even is identity? an identity? Do you know? You ever think about that? Tim Keller has spoken and written on this subject of an identity for, for years now. And he says an identity is two things, especially the way that we use the word. An identity is comprised of a sense of self and a sense of worth. And by a sense of self, he means that in and through all the different parts of your life, all the different roles that you play, all the different relationships, all the different hats that you wear, that there is a durable core, he says, that's always present in a part of every role, every activity, of every relationship, that it is the thread that runs through every aspect of your life and connects everything else. And everything that you do is based upon it. All of the way in which you operate is based upon that, that durable core. And then secondly, identity is also a sense of worth. What gives you meaning? What gives you purpose? What makes you believe I do matter? So a sense of self and a sense of worth, that's an identity. But here's an even bigger question. And that is, how do you get one? Traditional cultures, which represents the vast majority of human history, they say identity is given, as in Gilead. Identity is bestowed upon you by your family, by a community. You are, in other words, somebody of significance, and you matter because, first of all, you are related to these people, and you matter because you're in relationship with them. And so you surrender all of your life to them. You surrender your desires and your needs for the sake of the lives and the needs of others. And so self-denial is how honor is gained in cultures like that. In other words, you look outside yourself to others in order to know your identity. And now, of course, that approach can be abused. It can be manipulated. It can be misused. It can even become oppressive. And that is all very true. But notice that still this approach is what we have here in Jesus. Because who is Jesus according to this passage? Who is he? He is the beloved son of the father. That is his durable core. That is the foundation of all of his worth. And that is what Satan tries to undermine and undo. Jesus's identity is given to him which I don't think is something that I have to tell you, but it is something that is utterly abhorrent to the sensibilities of our modern Western culture. Maybe more so than anything else, because we go about our identity formation the exact opposite way. For us, identity is never bestowed. It's abhorrent to think it's bestowed, but rather it is self-created or it is self-discovered. We don't look outward to others and to our relationships. We look inward to our feelings to our dreams, to our desires. And we think if I can only understand them, my dreams, my desires, if I can only stand my inmost self and then unfold all of those desires and even express all of those desires, then I will be somebody. Then I will matter. And really it's what I talked about all fall when I quoted Carl Truman at length, you'll remember, and his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, because throughout that book, Carl Truman speaks about expressive individualism which is a term that he borrowed from Charles Taylor and Robert Bella. And that is how identity is formed now in the modern West. Individuals expressing what they individually think and feel and desire. And so the heroic narrative of our culture is entirely flipped. You don't gain honor by self-denial, but by what? Self-assertion for the sake of self. 
any movie, any book, all of them. It's self-assertion for the sake of self, especially against your family or against your community or against your society if in any way they question or critique your individual thoughts, feelings, or desires. That's the story of Gilead. That is Jack Bowden's life. Marilyn Robinson is putting her finger on that cultural reality and all the danger and damage that it does. Because make no sake, identity formation like that, it changes every aspect of our lives. For example, money and sex. Robert Bell in his book, Habits of the Heart, which he wrote in 1985, talking about American individualism and, and, the, and the failure to, of commitment in America, it was truly prophetic. Because he talked about in 1985, like 30 years ago, what we're living out now, which is he says, in traditional cultures, you make money and you have sex for the sake of building community. But now we make money and we have sex for the sake of finding an identity. They are both squarely about ourselves. And all of Satan's temptations here, all three are aimed at just that, at getting Jesus to create an independent identity for himself, split off from God the Father. If Jesus would just, first of all, do the miraculous and turn stones into bread, then he could feed all the hungry people who are always around him. He could be needed. That could be his identity. That could be his durable core. He could be the needed one. Or in verse five, he's, he's taken to the top of the temple. If he'd just jump off and, and glide down miraculously, because God the Father would never let him die like that. If he would just glide down miraculously, he would impress everyone. He would astound everyone. He wouldn't be the needed one. He would be a celebrity. He would be adored. He would be the one that amazes everyone. Or in verse eight, Jesus is taken to the very top of the highest mountain. He's given this supernatural view of all of the cultures of the world. And Satan says, if you just bow down to me, I'll make everyone bow down to you. You won't be the needed one. You won't be the adored one. You'll be the feared one. You'll be powerful. You'll be the one to whom everyone submits. You'll always win. You'll always get your way. Everyone will be forced to bend to you and to obey you. So you can be the needed one. That can be your durable core. Or you can be the adored one or the feared one. Any of these things. You can have any and all of it. You can just have that, but you can't have God. So the question is, do we take that? Have we taken that offer? And the reality is, is that we have, all of us in some way. Some of, some of us, all of us have said in some way this, this thread, this right here, this is why I matter. This is what gives me value. This is, gives me meaning. And so the question is, what is it for you? What is it for you? Henry Nouwen, another author, he says it really revolves around three things. Something that we do, something that others say about us, or something that we have. And I don't have time to go into that, but think about that. Something that we do, something that others say about us, or something that we have. Friends, my encouragement to you this morning is to listen to your baptism. If you are a Christian, listen to your baptism because it tells you that identity that you've been given, not earned. The identity that's been bestowed upon you. It's not been achieved. It's not been created. It's been given. I often tell you this. I already told you this this morning, that the three gifts given to Jesus at his baptism are the same gifts given to you. Heaven has been opened to you. The Spirit of God's been poured out upon you. And, and Jesus, because of Jesus, God the Father speaks words of love and acceptance over you. His baptism is an epiphany, not simply about Jesus, but about you. Because ultimately the cross is the greatest epiphany. And on the cross, Jesus didn't simply die 
momentarily. He suffered and he died a physical death and a spiritual death. And he was raised in order to share those three gifts with you. He died for your forgiveness and he was raised for those gifts to be given to you. And that you might believe that what his baptism says about you is true of you. You are not what you have. You are not what others say about you. You are not what you do. You are what God says about you and what God has done for you. So resist any temptation to doubt that. And notice how Jesus resists the temptation to doubt God's word. He does so through God's word. Everything Jesus says, the only words that come out of Jesus's mouth here are God's words. Deuteronomy 5 and 6. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. You can translate that pouring out of God's mouth, his word. This is what you have in the scriptures. God's word, God's guidance, his continual assurance is continually pouring out of his mouth to you. So believe it. Believe it. Read it. Listen to it. You are the beloved of God in Christ. Let that durable core guide every aspect of what you say and think and do. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would know who we are in and through your Son, and that that, that knowledge, that, that revelation, that very epiphany in and through your Son would give us great joy this morning as we begin this new season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.